I want to invite you, as we do a brief review this morning, to open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, as we set the context for the first angel's message, the political context at least, Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, the Bible says, And I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. The Bible depicts in the book of Revelation a world power that will emerge. This world power is symbolized by this artist's depiction of the beast power, Revelation chapter 13. This is a symbol. This is not a literal beast that you find in the Alaska Zoo. It has seven heads, ten horns, four different beasts. It's a composite beast. And just for reference, you can find all of these beasts in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. And the Bible indicates that this beast will be worshipped. Go to verse 2. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. The Bible indicates that this beast power will re-emerge on the world scene and will be worshipped. Skip down to verse 8. It says, all who dwell on the earth will do what? Will worship him whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, slain from the foundation of the world. Later on in the book of Revelation, it tells us about the mark of the beast which will be enforced. So this beast will be worshipped, it will be feared, and there will be a concerted world movement to bring this beast power into preeminence in the end of time. Now, when we go to Revelation chapter 14, we see another message that emerges. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, we saw this last Sabbath. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Revelation chapter 13, they worship the beast, they give glory to the beast, and they fear the beast. But in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, there's another message to worship the Creator, to fear God, and to give glory to Him. These are the two opposing messages that are going to emerge in the end of time, and you can see that this angel is holding in his hand the everlasting gospel. And the message that is to be proclaimed is to fear God, and as we said last Sabbath, the Andrews Study Bible cites that saying that fear God means to respect God and give glory to Him and worship the Creator. Now, there is this tension in theology 
between God's part and man's part. And as was illustrated today by our children's story, there tends to be a pendulum that swings back and forth between these two seemingly contradictory ideas in Scripture. We have an emphasis on God's part and an emphasis on man's part. And when you look at the last 2,000 years of Christian theology, there has been two opposite poles, one emphasizing what God does for us, and the other side emphasizing human works and human merit. On this side, one illustration of this is the notion or the idea of predestination. In other words, God does everything. You don't even choose. God chooses for you. God chooses who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost. Man's part is completely taken out of the equation. And then on this side, you have more of an emphasis on man's part. Our friends, the Roman Catholics, there's an emphasis on human merit. In other words, what we do earns us credit toward salvation. When you choose, there's little merit, as was evidenced by Erasmus when he was writing his letter to Luther back in the 16th century. There was this huge dialogue. Who gets the credit? When we choose God, do we get the credit? Is there little merit? And that was the argument that Erasmus was making at the heart of the gospel according to the Roman Catholics. John Wesley comes along, and he brings this beautiful synthesis between these two, and he comes up with this idea of prevenient grace. And this is according to Dr. Woodrow Wilson, who's retired now from Andrews University, the religion department. He says, On prevenient grace, sinners do not naturally seek for God, but that he earnestly seeks for them to come into a redemptive relationship with him. Such grace gracious seeking creates a proto-renewal which enables the convicted soul to respond to God's redemptive offer. In a nutshell, prevenient grace is this idea that we are in so need of help that we can't even choose without God's help. It's this idea that God's grace comes to every person and vivifies our nature so that we can choose, so that when we do choose, God gets all of the credit. So what John Wesley was able to do was preserve human choice and yet give all the credit to God. What a beautiful concept, a biblical concept. Now, when we look at the first angel's message, it's interesting, and I scratched my head when I was studying this, from a certain hermeneutic of letting the Bible speak. Here we have the everlasting gospel by implication. That's God's part, what God does in and through and for us. The angel is carrying the everlasting gospel. But look at the emphasis of what the angel is saying. Fear God. Who's the one that's supposed to fear God? Us. Who's the one that's supposed to give glory to Him? Us. Who's the one that's supposed to worship Him? Us fascinating. And I just grappled with this text because I was like, wow, it seems like there's this emphasis on man's part. 
give glory to Him, fear God, and worship Him, of course, in the context of the everlasting gospel, but what a fascinating message that is to be proclaimed to the entire world before Jesus comes. In other words, this is a blending, a harmony between what God does and what man's response is to be. Now, when we look at this idea of cooperating with God, I found this fascinating quotation from this book I had to read for my doctoral program. It's from our evangelical friends, Dr. Henry Cloud and Dr. John Towson. It's the book called How People Grow. And as I said last Sabbath, I was a little bit skeptical when I read this book. I said, what do evangelicals have to teach us about sanctification? But this was a fascinating illustration that this book used, and I quoted this last Sabbath. It says, when we work out our own salvation, meaning we execute our responsibilities in growth, all the while in mysterious and often invisible ways, God works in us for His purposes. The co-laboring is not at all as if God is simply doing things to us, like a surgeon operating on an anesthetized patient lying on an operating table. It's more like certain forms of brain surgery in which the patient is awake and working with the surgeon, telling them what he is experiencing as a servant surgeon probes and cuts one way, then another. We are partners in our own spiritual surgery. I like that. In other words, the way that God works is not a total taking over, diminishing our free will, but throughout the entire process, there is a cooperation between what God does and our human response. Dr. Henry Towson says it to certain types of brain surgery. And in our Christian experience, we tend to swing between one pole or the other. I've heard sermons emphasize and say, hey, let go and let God. How many of you heard a sermon like that before? Just let God do anything. And then another sermon comes along and says, hey, we need to pray, right? We need to study our Bibles. We need to minister. And depending on where I am in my sermonic calendar, I tend to emphasize one or the other. And this is a situation where it's a strange blend between the two. And here it is from God's amazing grace. Human effort avails nothing without divine power. And without human endeavor, divine effort is with many of no avail. To make God's grace our own, we must act our part. So here's this interesting blending between the two. So here's a synthesis of the first angel's message when it comes to faith and works. The first angel's message implies that God's people will understand and proclaim the biblical tension between faith and works. Praise God. God's people will understand the biblical tension between faith and works. Now, I want to be very sensitive this morning because in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, potentially, in our own church, in the Adventist faith, through a cycle in our own history and soteriology where the pendulum swung more to the side of works. Isn't that right? A more legalistic framework. And many people have been spiritually abused as a result of that emphasis. 
And what happens is that the tendency is for our own denomination and for people in general, and this is understandable, just like that pendulum swings, it tends to swing totally in the opposite direction and swings to the other side. Now, when I go to our campuses, I don't see a lot of legalism. I do see a lot of secularism. It's interesting where we are in that trajectory. I'm not saying that legalism is not an issue anymore, but my fear is that in our own pendulum swings of going back and forth between these opposite poles, we have become so burned by works that it swung to a certain direction where any evidence of God's grace working in the life has become something that is not even talked about in the community of faith. And we need to be very conscious of where we are in this biographical theology that we all go through. And I'll be the first one to admit that in my own Christian experience, I've gone through my own pendulum swings. I'm just being fully transparent here. And a big part of it is just awareness to understand where we are in our own biographical theology, the biblical tension between faith and works. So here it is. Just in case you think there isn't a biblical tension, open this text. I showed it to you last Sabbath, and this is the text that we quote a lot, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. I didn't put it on the screen for you because I wanted you to read it in your own Bible. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, we quote this all the time. I say it in my prayers, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. How many of you have heard that text before? It is God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Notice the emphasis. Is the emphasis on God's part or man's part? Oh, you guys are asleep. It's Memorial Day weekend. Oh, all right. God's part or man's part? God's part. God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But how many of you have ever heard a sermon on verse 12? Let's read verse 12, the verse just before it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here's the word. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I bet you haven't heard a sermon like that in the last 10 years. Wow, can you imagine, Pastor Shin? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, some of you that grew up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s might break out in hives if I preach that type of sermon. I mean, you're like allergic to that. And I understand the history because it's like, whoa. I mean, it's like, (gasps) I mean, oh my. But that's in the Bible. Right next to God works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I'm illustrating this saying that, look, there's a tension between these two realities of God's part and man's cooperation. This is not saying that our works merit anything, but our cooperation is essential. God is not going to force us to do anything. There is an element of man's part in this process. So here we have it. Look at the pendulum that swings back and forth. God's part, faith, works, and we kind of go through the last 2,000 years of Christian theology swinging back and forth between these two poles, and this is similar to this, this idea of the Reformation. 
This is Pilate's staircase in Rome, that fam- famous staircase where Martin Luther kneeled for the last time, and he heard the words, the just shall live by faith, sprang to his feet, and the Reformation was born in Martin Luther's heart that our works don't merit anything. What a profound idea. These people, bless their hearts, are trying to earn their way to heaven through works, to do things to earn salvation. Martin Luther, the Reformation, came with this biblical concept and this idea that you can't earn it. You can't buy it. Nothing you can do can earn your salvation. So here it is. This is a famous Reformation tenet. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So there it is. Works don't save us. Works don't earn our salvation. Works don't have any sort of credit towards our salvation. And here's the definition of a gift. Anything given willingly to someone without payment, something voluntarily transferred by one person to another without compensation, something given voluntarily without payment in return. The beauty of salvation. You accept Jesus as your Savior, you're saved. You don't have to do anything to earn that. It's a gift. Beautiful. Beautiful. Period. There it is. The concept of salvation by faith, not of works. The heart of the Reformation, the heart of Protestantism. And just in case you've heard that Ellen White is a legalist and believes in meritorious works, I have a couple quotes. I can give you a whole bunch more, but I just have two. These are the most profound to me. There is not a point that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, and established more firmly in the minds of all than the impossibility of fallen man meriting, that means earning, crediting anything by his best good works. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. There you have it. All right? Right there. This is a point that needs to be repeated over and over and over again because there's something about me when I'm given a gift, especially something that I don't deserve, I have a tendency to want to pay for it. Say, oh, this is too much. You can't give this to me. Why are you giving this to me? He must want something, right? We're terrible with gifts, all right? Especially when it's something that is huge. Salvation is a gift. One more quote, the grace of Christ is freely to justify the sinner without merit or claim on his part. Justification is full, complete pardon of sin the moment a sinner accepts Christ by faith. That moment, he is pardoned. You're saved. You're saved. It takes faith to believe that, but it's a reality. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to him, and he's no more to doubt God's forgiving grace, it's not God's will that you should be distrustful and torture your soul. You ever tortured your soul before, wondering if you're saved? Wow, it's not God's will that you should be distrustful and torture your soul with fear that God will not accept you because you are sinful and unworthy. Praise His name. Praise his name. You accept Jesus. You believe it by faith. Regardless of the way that you feel, you're saved. No questions asked. Your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. The reality of the gospel. Your works don't 
earn you a thing. Now, in the Reformation, a lot of people don't realize this, but Luther was going through his own pendulum, okay? He, he, he's human, and Martin Luther had been so burned by legalism, and he found the gospel of justification by faith, and there were certain parts of the Bible that Luther did not like. What part of the Bible do you think that is? The book of James. He hated the book of James, and you ever read the book of James? It's about works. Wow, imagine that. And look at this. In Luther, in 1522, in the preface of his German translation of the New Testament, Saint, and this is what he said, St. James' epistle is really a strawy epistle compared to the others, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, and 1 John, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. Can you imagine that? In other words, Luther read James, and he's like, look, there's nothing about the gospel in this book. And if he had his way, he would have removed the entire book of James out of the biblical canon. Now, what is he dealing with here? When, have you ever read the book of James? The book of James is a fascinating book. So here it is, James 2.24, and this sounds so not Protestant. <laughs> you ever read James? James 2.24, here it is. You see then that a man is justified by what? By works. Any of your blood pressures rising? Wow! You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. I mean, the whole Protestant concept is justification by faith alone. And here you have James with the audacity and the temerity to say, for you see then that a man is justified by works, not by faith alone. Now, how do we reconcile this? There's several ways of doing this. One of them is to say, oh, like Martin Luther, and say, this book of the Bible you throw it out, and you go through the whole Bible, and you start throwing out pieces that have anything to say of the, of the semblance of what James is saying. Or we can go through the Bible and say, okay, how do we reconcile these two realities? And that's the point that I try to do in my own Christian experience as I read Scripture. So we have these two tensions, these two polar opposites, you're justified by faith alone, and James says that works has a role to play in it. Now, as illustrated in our children's story, we have this illustration of the nature of Christ. Oh, there it is, the nature of Christ. When you look at the last 2,000 years of Christian Christology, you have two concepts that really baffled the early theologians as they grappled with the nature of Christ. Is Jesus divine or is Jesus human? And these two seem contradictory. How can you be God and human at the same time? It's a mystery. And so the early church, some of them, decided that Jesus was divine, but he looked like he was human. In other words, it was an illusion. He looked like he was eating, but he wasn't really eating. He had the appearance of a man, but he was really not a man. Like Gnosticism and Docetism, they were in that vein of saying that Jesus was God, but he was not really human. I mean, what do we call that type of teaching today? Heresy. 
right? Heresy. That's the, that's the idea of heresy. And then during the Enlightenment, someone came along, a group of theologians that thought they were very bright, and said, Jesus is not God. He is just a man. What do we call that? Heresy as well. This is the way it works. Now, the key to understanding the nature of Christ is to acknowledge the mystery and say that Jesus is both divine and human. It's not either or, but both and. And the same is true when it comes to faith and works. If we say that it's all about faith, and regardless of any visible evidence in my life, we come to a problem that we know as antinomianism, which says, look, we're saved by faith. It doesn't matter if I go steal, kill, commit adultery. I mean, that's one extreme of it. And then on the other extreme, you have legalism. The key is to blend the two. Now, Jesus brings the, together, the two together in this analogy. In John chapter 15, verse 4 and 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, does what? Bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Jesus uses the analogy of the vine and the branches and says, look, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Now, what is fruit? Here's an illustration that Jesus is using from agriculture, saying that fruit is the visible byproduct of an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. You will bear much fruit. Now, what is fruit? Here it is in the Bible, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every what? In every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In other words, good works is the natural byproduct of abiding in Christ. Good works comes out as we focus on abiding in Christ. And look at this. This is from the book of James again, and he unpacks what he means by good works. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. In other words, if we are abiding in Christ, it should affect the way we treat each other. Amen? There should be some transformation that takes place as a result. And this is what James is bringing out. I like what John Piper and John Stott said in regards to this. Our inheritance is not earned by our lived-out righteousness, but our belonging to the family and being an heir is confirmed by it. It's not earned, but it's confirmed. Good works are indispensable to salvation, not as the ground or the means, however, but as the consequence and evidence. I like that. This is from Steps of Christ, page 73. When Christ abides in the heart, the whole nature is transformed. Christ's spirit 
His love softens the heart, subdues the soul, and raises the thoughts and desires toward God and heaven. The focus of the believer is not to be good works. The focus of the believer is to focus on that connection. Jesus said, abide in me, and I in you. Our focus is to be connected to the vine. Not, am I performing? Not, if I'm living up or having the evidence, or am I doing or right, or things, things like that. The real focus of the believer is that connection. So if every day I'm saying, Lord, I want to be connected to you today, Jesus said, you will bear much fruit. In other words, the byproduct of our connection with Christ is a life that is transformed, a life that is full of love. Jesus Christ is the vine, we are the branches, and our focus is not to be here. Praise God, right? Our focus is to be up there, that connecting point. That's where our focus is to be, to abide in Jesus. Now, how does Jesus abide in us? This is a, just a, a unique teaching. Jesus inhabits us. And that's what the Bible indicates. Jesus is not only with us, he can be in us. This is Christ in you, the in Christ motif. A, a fascinating idea, and we many times think of this metaphorically, but the Bible actually speaks of this literally, Christ in us. Look at this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and by this we know that he... Jesus abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the reality, that after Jesus went to heaven, He gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is able to be everywhere at once. Also, because it's a spirit, is able to inhabit us as a person. When we invite Jesus in, He does that through the medium of the Holy Spirit. How does Jesus live in us? It's through the Holy Spirit. This is a fascinating idea, and we look at Steps of Christ, page 75, henceforth through the Spirit, Christ was to abide continually in the hearts of His children. Their union with Him was closer than when He was personally with them. How do we stay connected to God? It is through the Holy Spirit. You've many times heard this concept, oh, we need to be more loving. We need to be more love, lovable and loving Christians to others. Well, how does that happen? Because I want to tell you, I'm naturally not a loving person. I'm a very selfish person. But Romans chapter 5, verse 5, and I've just been meditating on this week. I mean, what a concept. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been what? Poured out into our hearts. What a metaphor. Through the who? Through the Holy Spirit. What a picture. It's like we're these vessels that are not loving at all, but through the Holy Spirit, God can pour His love into our hearts. The beauty of the gospel is you can say, Lord, I'm not a loving person, but I want you to pour your love into my heart. How many of you want that today? Amen? How many of you want Jesus through His Spirit to pour His love into our hearts, and we can say, Lord, I am a selfish person in need of Your grace. Help me to be more loving. And through His Spirit, the greatest gift that heaven can bestow, He can pour His love 
into our hearts as we ask for the Holy Spirit daily. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that it is through the Holy Spirit that you can abide in our hearts through faith. Help us to make this decision daily, to accept you as our Savior and Lord, to not focus on the fruit, but to focus on our connection with God each and every day, that by faith we can receive your Spirit, thereby receiving your love, which is poured out into our hearts through faith. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.